Welcome to the Red Rabbit Podcast. I am your host, Ticket Hickory. In this season of the Red Rabbit Podcast, we will be listening to book one of W.H. Ellingsworth's The Endless Falling of Dreams book series. So without further ado, the Red Rabbit Podcast proudly presents W.H. Ellingsworth's The Endless Falling of Dreams book one, Orthodoxy. Fare thee well, brave travelers. Episode 5, Inspector Almier's Journal, or His Words, Not Mine. May wisdom follow. I'd say that it's best to start where it all began, but I don't know if I can do that. After all, who really knows where anything truly begins? If life is a series of results from choices, wouldn't one life be the result of millions, perhaps even billions, of little choices by people outside of that one life? A lot of my story concerns stories I found in a letter addressed to a man I didn't know, from a man I knew even less, and about a boy I'll never meet. Yet the story is mine, as much of mine as anyone else's. I also wonder if I should start with my father, who always wanted me to become a writer. He insisted that I could tell a person's character more precisely than anyone else he knew, even men twice my age. My father was neither autocratic or harsh, and for that I know that I am lucky. The old man was gentle and remarkably supportive of my artistic pursuits. When he died, my studies slipped, and when my academics were over, I didn't have the grades for university and took a government aptitude test instead. My GAT profile indicated I'd best serve as either a magistrate's assistant or a police officer. Frankly, chose my career with little more than thought than if I had just tossed a coin, thinking I'd be better able to use my supposed gift in police work. Things followed, as life always does, and choices led one to another. A zip line of merging destinies, from bumps and successes if you ask me, and I ended up as an inspector by 29. But I'm not going to start here. Instead, I'm going to start with when I got the call. I had already spent an hour in the rain before my phone started buzzing in my pocket. I stood under the trusses of the bar's bridge, watching the sky. The clouds were pretty thick, but still, if you looked close enough, you could see faint, microscopic light. They were Vier's fleet, and as long as they were microscopic, I felt okay enough. I wasn't alone. Watching the sky had become a popular hobby across the entire ICA, with rumors of surrender growing compounded by the very real reports of the ICA's increasing number of defeats, people took to looking up more and more. It didn't matter whether or not it made any sense. Everyone knew that the Pax Vier didn't need to be literally on the planet to take it, and their ships certainly didn't need to be that close in order to bomb it. Still, looking up at the sky became a strange, misguided source of comfort. When my phone rang, I thought about letting it go straight to message. But I couldn't. The lights hadn't taken away every obligation. Not for me, at least. Not yet. So I picked it up. 
I shut down the hologram image once I saw who was calling, and I held it up to my ear the traditional way. You want to see my face when I call Almier? The caller ribbed. It was Alphonse Grec, my commanding officer. Grec was a vulgar man, who was as bad to listen to as he was to look at. But unable to avoid both, I had to settle only escaping the one. No, I stated bluntly. I didn't see the point of hiding how I felt. What would they do? Fire me? Crime rates were terrible. When the rumors about the Vaillere first started swirling, there was chaos. I'd estimate that Bacchus's army had more men on watch in the city than they did in orbit. Military law was unofficially enacted across different sections of the planet. It wasn't as bad in Onium as it was in the other countries that made up the planet. For that, I suppose we were lucky. I got something for you. A kid's body just turned up and the army wants us investigating it. There was a very specific sort of glee in Greg's voice when he said it that made me want to smash my phone. Why don't they want their own people on it, Greg? Because why do that when you can have the best? Greg let out a combination between a laugh and a cough that went on for nearly a minute before he continued. Some little techno geek got himself shot while watching a play. Not usually a dangerous activity. Any witnesses? No, it was a rehearsal. But didn't the actors see anything? Rex stayed quiet for so long I thought I might have lost the call. A cargo ship flew over my head, past one of the projection screens hanging on a nearby skyscraper. Sometimes cargo ships disrupted calls, but this time I wasn't so lucky. That's the thing, Almier, Greg said his voice hardly unable to hide his shock. They were all robots, machines. You sure you have that right? I asked, slightly amused, but not really concerned. I got it right here in front of me. Some musician from the Metacropolis, some arrogant rich gnat, Pascar Vidal, wanted to make musical with nothing but nuts and bolts. One of the robots killed the kid. That's a new one. I leaned back against the wall. Above me, some trash-compacting ship's hazard lights were flashing. The reflection off of the wet pavement gave me a headache that made it even harder to listen to Grek. His words were always bathed in saliva and gravelly coughs. They checked the thing's programming, I asked. Of course. Been erased. The thing's hard drive is completely gone. Down the street, a young woman launched out from behind a door. She moved in a hurry, but without running. She held her head down and covered her head with her hoodie. You there, Frank? I'm here. The girl was coming closer. Her shirt and coat were wrinkled and frayed, but still looked eloquent, sitting on her shoulders. She kept her eyes on the ground, but was unable to hide the youth in her face, even if, like her clothes, she was a little afraid. She wore a band in her hair with a small jewel on the right side. Maybe a gift when she was young? The way she moved down the street, teetering awkwardly on her feet, filled me with a terrible sadness. Seeing her more closely, I suppose she could have been anywhere from 18 to 30. The war was skewing people's ages, 
an unexpected consequence no one seemed to ever want to talk about. But I suppose all wars do that, turn children into adults and adults into babies. And I felt for the kids having to grow overnight. Suggested curfew will commence in 15 minutes. Please kindly make your way to your home or nearest military transport station. An intercom blasted above me. The voice was lifeless, a sort of blank, monotonous note. It made me look up only for a few seconds, but when I looked back down, the girl was already gone. Then there came a terrific commotion from the building she came from. A much older woman came running out the door. She wore a terribly ugly green shirt. I clung to her like a wet garbage bag. Run, child, run! And don't you ever come back! The old woman screamed, her gray hair flattening under the rain. The tears welled up in her eyes. You all gotta get out of here! Do you hear me, children? You all have to leave! And don't you look back! She kept screaming until her voice gave out, and she began to cry. Only one light went on from the apartment complex across the street, and I think I saw maybe a single face, but then the light went off, leaving the woman alone with only the rain and the trash-compacting ship. The matter didn't need any deep investigation. It was an increasing problem across Onium, and the district of Carpathia, my city, was not excluded. Either people stopped wanting to be things, or they simply forgot how to be those things. I thought about running after the young woman, but what could I do for her if I had? There didn't seem to be a point with those microscopic lights getting bigger and bigger. We were all destined to be orphans, at best, sooner or later. Francois! Sheesh, I keep losing you. I told him not to buy from an alien. I'm here, Grek. I didn't lose you. Well, you're lucky. Never trust an alien. You're slippery when wet. Pigs in the mud are always wet. You know what I mean? He laughed at his own stupid remark. Listen, they want us on it. The military asked for us specifically. Why would they do that? The old woman down the street finally opened her door and began inching herself back into the doorway. She called the girl's name a few times before going in completely. Ruth! Ruth! You hear the rumors? I guess they figure this could be a nice public relations victory. Local cops saved the day. Everyone should keep on keeping on. Don't let the Vire get you down. All that jazz. I turned away from the apartment, the makeshift theater stage thought about what the ICA was looking for. Apathy was nearly as bad as rebellion. The war and the rumors of surrender anesthetized the entire city. You solve this case, they'll make a big deal out of it. Put your name and face in the paper. Tell everyone that there's still work to be done and life to live. You know the deal. You say he was an engineer? I asked. Yep. Let me guess who for. Look, just take the case and keep it simple. Nothing special here. Fine. I mean it. Listen, don't... Well, don't be you for once. He was oddly nervous. And his voice stayed with me even after I'd hung up and began walking to the crime scene. I didn't care about walking in the rain. 
now with the lights above getting closer by the hour. The theater was in a part of the city called the Bard's Abbey. It was a part of what was the largest and most influential arts community in the district of Carpathia. There were various art houses and museums, theaters and stages there. At one time, you couldn't go 10 feet without bumping into an artisan or a musician performing in the streets. The only place that could compare to it were the rapturous streets of the Metacropolis. That was before the ICA began losing. One planet after another, one battle after another, one soldier after another. Now, under the sweltering heat of surrender, most of the Bard's Abbey had been shut down. The factory buildings in the warehousing district loomed over the boarded-up playhouses and museums like tombs, pouring their smoke out above like some infernal elegy. Out of all the boroughs of the district of Carpathia, I hated walking the streets of the Bard's Abbey the most. It was like walking through a giant open graveyard where the bodies weren't buried and the corpses laid looking right up at you. Drug addicts and criminals overran it, and it replaced the warehouse district as the most common site for a murder. Most people couldn't understand why anyone would even still try to produce a show there. I might have been slow to admit it then, but I'll freely admit it now. I knew why the occasional artists kept coming. In those streets, amongst those open and rotting mausoleums, were stone ghosts of times past, times of great art and poetry, when life was more than merely a brief exhale before the shadow. It was a time when life was about living, and creation and innovation surpassed the eventuality. Now we were just sort of sitting around, waiting to get euthanized. The old theater was named the Belmont. Its brick walls were still in place, and it rose up in a beautiful archaic rectangle under the shadows of the surrounding cyclopean skyscrapers with their projection screens and lambent glass walls. The streets were quiet, except for the rain, and faint, distant sirens. If you listened closely, you could hear people screaming or crying in the distance, but that went for anywhere in the city, and I'd wager that went for anywhere in the entire ICA as well. There were only a few cars at the scene. Near one were two cops, a gaunt-faced officer near retirement named Joe Peck, and a short, stout man, a few years older than me, named Enric Hallex. Hallex always appeared fierce, his jaw and eyes locked in a square-chinned rigidity. He leaned against a car, barely holding an umbrella between his armpit. He didn't bother even looking up at me when I came over to him, and just remained there, leaned up against that car with the umbrella precariously dangling underneath his arm, without even blinking. You walked. No wonder it took you forever to get here, he said. I got the paperwork for you, Peck said. His eyes were so bloodshot it was hard to see their pupils and the stubble on his cheeks looked more like black moss growing on dilapidated stone. He reached into the car and grabbed a small folder. Grek, sent you both down here to give me a report, I said. He sent us both down here to talk to you and give you a report, Henrik said. He finally looked at me. His face always gave the impression of being etched from stone, a series of squared edges that never moved. What's that? 
I asked. Axiom wants this quiet. They requested we handle rather than the military as to not attract attention. The military granted them their request, of course, but they want this resolved one way or the other by the end of the week. Nothing like a little pressure. Why me? I asked. I was never known as a good company man, and quite frankly, my appointment surprised me almost as much as it did Enric. You were requested by the engineer's superior. Said she knows you. Something about the McCavity case, Peck said. The woman came back to me. Someone had stolen something from an Axiom lab, and I helped this high-ranking engineer track it down. An electric component they were testing for ICA space freighters. I liked her. She was pleasant, a little reserved like all Axiom employees, but talked to me about poetry a little bit. It wasn't much, but small talk wasn't owed to anyone in the district of Carpathia, especially from someone who worked at Axiom. We both liked T.S. Purgoy. His satirical poems about sexist made us laugh. I guess if you can't rely on your actual police work, Enric said, what a late night interrogation in the moonlight in Carpathia just overcame you both. I ignored him. That case wasn't about much more than shoplifting. She asked for me? Appreciate the sudden modesty. Thanks, Enric said with a cruel arrogance. If you want to do everyone a favor, you can go home. I'll take the case. I already told Grek I'd take it, Enric. He'll mess this up, he said to Peck. Peck looked at me before speaking. You can keep this case. We gave you the case, but, but look, okay, look. The point is, they want someone within the week. Don't go looking for any great truths here. You find someone, find something that sticks, and everyone's happy, Peck said, tilting his head and pointing at me as he spoke. He practically jabbed me in the chest with his finger, and the veins between the gray hair and the sides of his head bulged. Then he handed me the folder, cold and dismissively, like it were a piece of junk mail. But when I tried grabbing it from him, he latched on. Francois, I mean it. No fooling around on this one. Find someone and make it stick. The chief wants that made clear. No one needs any more trouble right now. Not in this city. I thought he might cry as we stood there. Then he released the folder and got inside the car. He gripped onto the steering wheel and I saw his wedding band flash under the bright lights. What do you want me to do? Just pick a name out of a hat and put him in jail? Not a bad idea, Enric said. Without real reason, he spit on the street next to him and close to me and then got into the car. No one's saying that, Francois. Look, no one's... Find someone. Something that sticks. Beck looked sad and overworked. A beat down, lean down, leftover. Listen to me on this one, Francois. And then they drove off, and I just stood there, watching the car's red lights jump through the rain.
Thank you for listening to the Red Rabbit Podcast. I am your host, Ticket Hickory. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. Until next time, brave travelers. <laughs>